this church uh, will uh, cease to exist in a very short space of time if we dare to ignore words like this passage. When a denomination, a group of churches or an individual church grinds to, into kind of obscurity, often the finger is pointed, isn't it, to the world outside. We blame them for the pressures that they've placed upon us, for the culture uh, as it has changed us, uh, for the laws perhaps of the land which have changed. But history shows us that the greatest threat to us is us. Not just history, this passage shows us that the greatest danger to any church comes from within rather than without. For example, you can look back a a little while and uh, the challenge of things like textual criticism, liberal views of the atonement, what Jesus achieved uh, on the cross. It decimated churches in this country last century. The church, though, killed itself because it simply accommodated and compromised The demise of denominations and churches, it's still very much in progress at the moment. Now, it can be momentarily halted because of the masses of property that they own, that they sell off to plug an ever-increasing financial hole. But we must be clear, the greatest threat to us is us. We will feel pressure to accommodate to contemporary views and compromise to populist opinions. And we see it all around us. Even the evangelical church, that is what we would call the Bible teaching churches in this country. I think at your most generous, you could could go as far to say that they are kind of mixed at best. Many churches who would call themselves evangelicals would be biblically well, fairly ignorant. They would promote vacuous, kind of empty worship experiences rather than calling people to deep, penetrating, life-changing works of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Oh, the opposite end of that spectrum is, and equally dangerous, is the routine, dry, empty study of God's Word where lives remain unchanged. More than anything else, the church in this country is more morally and uh, ethically loose, wider, accepts everything and everyone. Morally, anything is, is kind of okay nowadays. And all in the name of relevance. We live in an age where we like to pander and to tolerate. The, the, broader, the, the, the broader church has done so to the point that it has no distinction from the world around us. Give you a few examples. Many churches obscure the teaching of the atonement. That is what Jesus achieved when he died on the cross. He died as we've seen. Chapter 5, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians. Again and again, I keep pointing out that Christ died on the cross for our sin in our place. So that we might become the righteousness of God. But that's an insult in our age. Because it presupposes guilt and sin. People don't like to hear that. Church often, a broader church often ignores biblical teaching on errors in morality. How dare we say that anything whatsoever is a sin? Even though that is what God says in His Word, the Bible. Something of a political hot potato at the moment, isn't it, over the last few weeks? Where do churches draw the line? 
Another example on remarriage after divorce. The wider church has broadened itself so far beyond the biblical exceptions given in the New Testament. And all in the name of relevance and tolerance. The wider church broadly accepts all views now, it seems to be, regarding uh, views of sexuality. Likewise, the views of uh, worshipping other gods. Multi-faith services seem to be cropping up everywhere as a kind of norm. This so-called tolerant society will push and it will cajole the church to accommodate. But ironically, of course, it will not tolerate anyone who thinks differently to it. But the church itself is responsible. It is responsible for its own accommodation and its own compromise. And therefore, I think it would be the height of arrogance and ignorance to put our heads in the proverbial sand and let these words walk on by. On Facebook, a lot of my friends who are church ministers, uh, they keep posting endless complaints about the nature of our society. It's liberalism and the change of laws and moan and moan and moan about such and so on. They think the main threat is out there to us. It is not. Yes, it's a threat in some ways. But it is nothing in comparison to the threat that sat next to you. Or stood right in front of you. Or you. And the same was true in Corinth. Hence Paul's strong and very direct warning in verse 14. Look at it. It's essentially a one point sermon. Do not be yoked with unbelievers, he says. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. It's our first point on on our sheets as well. We've seen again and again in this letter that there were unbelievers within the church in Corinth. Oh, let's, let's be clear about what they looked like. They were, they were able. They were very, very good communicators. But they opposed the gospel and Paul as a messenger of the gospel. We've seen these opponents on a number of occasions and we'll see them again and again. We'll find out more about them and their teaching later on in the letter. But Paul's point here is really simple. To be yoked with these people, those unbelievers, those who reject the gospel of reconciliation with God that Paul has brought to the church as an apostle empowered and authorised by God. Paul is just saying simply, do not be yoked with them. Now that metaphor of yoked, what it means, it comes from Deuteronomy 22 verse 10, where the law used that metaphor, that same metaphor, saying that an ox and a donkey couldn't be yoked um, uh, together. Now, we know what a yoke is. It's a thing that binds two animals, isn't it? So they'd be united in their task, whether that's ploughing a field or pulling a cart, that bit of wood that kind of hooks around both of their necks. And the point was that they're different animals. Ox and donkey, they'd be pulling in different ways. It wouldn't work if they're they're different in that way. And the point in the law, and the point here is that Christians are a different breed in a sense to the unbeliever. And therefore they cannot be yoked. Paul's point is simple. The application is, is that a Christian cannot be partnered. They cannot be allied with an unbeliever, with their teaching, with their way of life, their false worship, which was the issue here in Corinth. Now, we must be clear about what this does not say. Four things, very quickly. What this does not say and imply. 
This is not suggesting, as history shows as some have pointed it to be, this is not suggesting that Christians should separate with Christians, fight over matters of doctrine. So if a friend is a believer but has a differing view on, on some particular secondary matter, you know, whether it's baptism or something like that, that is not a cause to, to separate, to, to not be yoked, to not partner with them. Never speak to them just because they have a different new opinion on that particular view. No! This passage does not justify that. Secondly, this is not suggesting Christians separate themselves completely from unbelievers. You can go to work tomorrow. Be relieved with that. Enjoy that. Though, of course, wisdom must be applied to all situations we live in. Not everything we do, not all the people that we spend time with, are helpful to our faith. 1 Corinthians 10 is helpful in that. Thirdly, in terms of marriage. If a Christian is married to an unbeliever, they should not seek a divorce. Separate. Paul is not suggesting that here, nor anywhere else. In fact, he says the complete opposite in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 following. Fourthly, in terms of the church, unbelievers were welcome in the church in Corinth as much as they are welcome in any Christian church throughout the world and throughout all history. Really welcome. And if you are here today and you do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, welcome. We love you. We want you to be here because we want you to hear about the best news that can be in your life that it is in our lives. That is that Jesus Christ came and he came to die for us. So that we could be with him for eternity. It's the best news ever. And you're in the best place ever to find out about that news. So what, what is Paul suggesting here in saying do not be yoked with unbelievers? Literally it, it actually reads do not be mismated with unbelievers. But that would be slightly clunky in our language wouldn't it? So let's stick with do not be yoked. Paul is urging the Corinthians specifically to not engage in compromising Temple idol worship with unbelievers who were in the church. He's calling them essentially to disassociate themselves with people who say, turn back to chapter 5, verse 21. It has been our memory verse and will continue to be our memory verse throughout our whole lives. No, I'm joking there. Um, God made him who had no sin, as Jesus, to be sin for us, to take the penalty for our sin, to take it on himself, all the justice that we deserve. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the double swap of the cross. And Paul is calling the Corinthian church to disassociate with, them, with anyone in that church who say that that is not enough. That the reconciliation that we can find with God through Christ is not enough. You, you, you need to add a bit to that. Or take away from that. Paul is saying don't be allied with anyone. Yoked with anyone who is saying Jesus is not enough. If rituals and religious experiences are being encouraged as a necessity. Paul is saying do not be yoked with those people. Now that sounds obvious doesn't it? But I don't think we must not be naive. Because difference in, differences in Bible teaching uh, can often be very subtle. And our feelings and our longings 
can often make us overlook and therefore compromise. Our loyalties can blur our discernment. Do not be yoked with unbelievers, whether in ministry, within the church, life of the church, leadership within the church, in marriage. The applications are so numerous. And we must not exempt people because they are good company. Oh, you know, because they are our friends, because they're family members, because they're well respected, or because they've got more degrees in theology than even Ash. Or maybe because they're just good looking. Maybe because they've been what we've been looking for in some way for a long time. Or because they've just grown up in the church. Let me give you a hypothetical example that will cut quite close to the bone, I think. What if my sons, Barnaby and Zach, went off to university and began to live in a way that was openly hostile to Christ? That is, they were ignoring his word. We all knew about it. They come back from university and there's a need. Paula says there's a need upstairs amongst the Sunday school. Would we let them help out in the Sunday school classes? They're the minister's kids. But they are openly rejecting God's word. What do we do? In a sense, they actually say, oh, we'd love to help out. You know, get back with the kids. We we know them. We've got lots to offer. We'd love to help out. And in some ways, we're kind of thinking, yeah, it'd be good for them, wouldn't it? They'd be able to hear God's word and so on. You know how the arguments go. This is so dangerous. Because everything in us, probably in me particularly, will be going, oh, yeah, let's get them involved. Let's compromise. But if they are acting and living as unbelievers, we must not be yoked with them and allied in ministry with them. Christ's also will be dead before his 25th birthday if we dare to step on that slippery slope. This is a call from Paul for the church in Corinth so that they will not be complacent and arrogant to think that they are safe. Their greatest danger, our greatest danger, comes from within. We must be vigilant and not be yoked with unbelievers. Now what follows? It's interesting, the structure of the passage, I think, is fairly straightforward. The point is fairly simple. Let's just cast our eyes over it quickly so we get a bit of an overview. There's this command in verse 14, do not be yoked. That's kind of spelt out again. If you look at, down at verse 17, he kind of brings a whole bunch of Old Testament uh, quotations together there. But in verse 17, he says, come out from them, be separate. It's a kind of reiteration, isn't it, of verse 14. And then in verse 7, Sorry, chapter 7, verse 1, that final verse of our reading, there's a final and more than general command that follows from that specific instruction to not be yoked. And essentially, the same point is made three times. So I hope we're clear by the end. Now, we've seen it with the initial command, do not be yoked. But what follows immediately after that? Let's, let's cast our eyes down and see what follows. And Paul Funnily then, straight after that command, do not be yoked, what does he do? He asks five rhetorical questions, each with the expectation of the negative answer, underlining the importance of the the initial command to to do not be yoked. Look at the five rhetorical questions he asks. So he says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. 
For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Answer, nothing. You can answer everyone like that, it's okay. You don't have to have a squeaky voice. Um, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? No, nothing. All negative, okay, by the way. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is another word for Satan. Nothing. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. Last one. What agreement is there? I'm not going to ask you to carry on with this, okay? You get the idea. Nothing. Wonderfully, each of these rhetorical questions highlights, though, the distinction between the new covenant believer and the unbeliever. To bring emphasis to that initial command of Paul's, do not be yoked with an unbeliever. Think back again to chapter 5, verse 21, as you look at that first question. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the new covenant believer, if you're a Christian here today, you're a new creation, you have been counted as righteous before God as you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in a response to that, the new covenant believer is to be righteous in their lives, to live that out, following God's ways through his word, to honour Christ. So verse 14, what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing. It's complete opposite. There's a complete difference. One is righteous, counted righteous in Christ. One is not. And it's unrighteous. Wickedness is the word used here. Same for the second question. New covenant believer is light. We saw that back in chapter 4 verse 6. Let me remind you of that. For God who said let let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So what fellowship does light have with darkness? None. It's a complete opposite. We are designated believers, opposed to unbelievers, uh, in the new covenant blessings which we, and we receive. Uh, which we receive, The new covenant blessings we receive. We are also the temple of God. Which is the last question. Where before, of course, God dwelt in the tabernacle and then the temple. Then in Christ, as he tabernacled himself amongst us, John 1 tells us. Then in the the new covenant, the spirit resides in our hearts. So therefore, we are the dwelling place of God. Therefore, we are the temple of God. Each of these questions, you see, is pushing Paul's argument further. The sphere of the new covenant believer, the Christian is mutually exclusive from that of the unbeliever. They are totally and radically opposed in every way. Righteousness, wickedness, light, darkness, in Christ, in Satan. Believer, unbeliever. A place where God dwells, a temple, and a place of idol worship. Christians, we must not be yoked with unbelievers. We must not accommodate ourselves to culture and compromise. Why? Because we are a temple of the living God, verse 16 says. We are the temple of the living God. Now, worshipping idols in the temple may be the presenting issue here in Corinth. But Paul's message is clear to all Christians. To all new covenant believers in Christ as new creation, as we saw earlier on. We are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God by his spirit. 
Idol worship, therefore, is incompatible. It doesn't matter what people are doing around us. However respectable they seem, however esteemed they are in the culture, do not be yoked with them. Do not be aligned with them. Whatever they worship, now I'm sure it's not like a little bronze statue or something like that. It's probably not that today. But we know there are lots of idols and there are lots of places of worship. Whether that's money, career, relationships, intimacy. Whatever they give their ultimate worth to. Do not be yoked. Because we are the temple of the living God. Do not accommodate their worship into your life. Do not compromise and align yourselves to them. Do not be yoked. Rather, as that instruction in verse 17 says... Be separate. Let's um, read verse 16 through and 17 as well, just to refresh our minds on that. What agreement is there between temple, the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you. Now, did you see that? Surrounding that encouragement to separate. There are two promises of God made to his people. As they are delivered. And they firstly come as they were delivered out of slavery in the Exodus. Verse 16. Look at it. We see the promise of relationship. That is of intimacy with God. If we're separate, we can have intimacy with God. Verse 18, we see the security of adoption into God's family. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You see that? See, Paul, is, what he's doing here is he's mixing a whole bunch of Old Testament quotes together. Totally legitimate, and does it often. But here he's making a point to the church in Corinth that they are to separate, to not compromise, to not be yoked with unbelievers. Rather, what they are to do, they are to rest in the promises of God. As we see spelled out through the intimacy offered in the covenant and the relationship of adoption into his family in and through the covenant. We are to rest in the promises of God. Now, once those promises were fulfilled, as they were delivered out of slavery, later as they were restored from the exile, but now they are fulfilled for us in and through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And therefore, you see, as we read these verses here now, if we are Christians, we are the full beneficiaries of the new covenant restoration and deliverance, which means we can, like verse 16, know God intimately. We can, as we see in verse 18, be adopted into his family, being heirs of an eternal inheritance. You see, the logic of Paul's argument here is really simple. We must separate ourselves from unbelievers, not be compromised by their way of living, their thinking, their worship. We are to trust Christ and his promises. We are to live for Christ. Worship Christ. The Corinthians have received these covenant promises of intimacy and adoption. If in Christ the same is true for us. 
And it demands a threefold separation. Do you see that in verse 17? Come out, be separate, touch no unclean thing. There's a strong separation. Do not be yoked, aligned. Do not compromise yourself. Now we get to the last verse. Paul concludes this whole section with this rather personal, moral. It's a very progressive command as well. Because he encourages growth and maturity in the believer. Let's refresh our minds in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, the promises, as we've seen in verse 16 and 18. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Come to our second point much more briefly. Since we have these promises, uh, the promises established in the new covenant as Jesus Christ died and rose again. They're shown in those previous verses, but they give us three things. We have these promises, dear friends. Note the love and the relationship of Paul to the church in Corinth. He says, since we have these promises, we need to do three things. Purify ourselves, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's look at those very briefly. Let us purify ourselves. It's a cleansing word Paul is using there. And it's a cleansing word for, think about any previous yoking that we've had with unbelievers. Any compromise in our lives needs to be cleansed, got rid of. Everything that contaminates body and spirit, he says. It's pretty ruthless, isn't it? We are to cease all improper involvement with unbelievers, whether in relationships, whether in uh, what we, what we um, worship, anything other than God. Everything that contaminates our intimacy with God. Now what follows is linked as a consequence of purifying ourselves, we will be perfecting holiness. Or, it's a difficult term to, in the English there, it's completing holiness. Living in a set apart or holy way. Simply it is to honour Christ, obeying his word, doing so in response to his work of making us holy, declared holy before God by being sin for us, as we saw in chapter 5.21. What's our motivation? The same as we saw back in chapter 5, verse 14. Out of reverence for God. The same word really is it's a fear of God, but it's, a, it's an awe, it's a reverent fear. We live in awe of God and his power and his love. Both should motivate us to not be yoked with unbelievers. Friends, let's purify ourselves, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I have to say, I was really challenged as I looked at this verse uh, this week. One commentator I was reading just simply asked the question to help apply this last verse. Let me ask that of you. These words are true for us uh, if we're Christians here today. Let's look at verse, chapter 7, verse 1, then I'll ask the question he asked. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And the question was simply this. Are you more holy, that is, more set apart for God as you have got older? You see, if we look back and think that our, our best days with God were in the past, that is an absolute tragedy, isn't it? 
Perhaps as you do, like me, look back to student days where you were so passionate to make Christ known. Everyone knew. They all thought that was quite annoying. But a day wouldn't go by when I'd pester my hockey friends and my swimming friends and tell them about Jesus. Was I more prayerful then? Did I spend more time in God's word then? The commentator I was reading just simply wisely said this. He said, time should not be our enemy in this. Time should not be our enemy in this. We should be growing in godliness, growing in a desire to make Christ known, growing in discernment, growing in holiness. If you are more godly as a boy than you are a man, something is wrong. If you were more godly 10 years ago than you are now, something's wrong. Something is contaminating you, to use Paul's words here. You're yoked to something or someone separate. Separate yourselves and grow in godliness. Do you see Paul's logic? He says, do not be yoked, separate yourselves. And he finishes with an encouragement toward personal godliness because the greatest threat to you obeying the command is you. We must not compromise. We must not accommodate. We must not be yoked, allied with unbelievers. Practically, what does it look like? Corporately as a church, we will face challenges. Who we partner with? ally ourselves with whether that be in mission or just uh, what groupings of churches we're in if we join a denomination we'll need to think very carefully about what that means and what we will have to do would it mean compromise you must pray for us as leaders of the church as we consider these things personally what does it mean Now please remember, Paul is not saying we must isolate ourselves away from anyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Never speak to anyone. The application here in Corinth is temple worship uh, and and the idol worship that was going on in the temple. Uh, That's not exactly popular in London, is it, these days? But we know that there are many temples and many idols in our culture today that people devote their lives to. I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but the temple of Oxford Street and the idol of consumerism. The temple of Soho and the idol of sexual expression. Oh, that's to name a few, isn't it? Paul says, do not be yoked. That is, we must not believe that these idols offer anything in comparison to the new covenant promises established in Christ. What does a relationship that dishonours God offer in comparison to the intimacy of verse 16 of knowing the eternal creator of the universe and the promise of verse 18 of being his adopted child to receive an eternal inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade? Now, of course, traditionally this verse is often plucked out to warn Christians when they consider dating or marrying an unbeliever. That is appropriate. It's not a direct application to, the, to Corinth in this passage. that They were compromised in their idol worship. But we must not ignore this application. Do not be yoked to unbelievers. 
If you have God-given longings for a relationship and it seems the options are within, if you like, are limited, the temptation is, of course, to look elsewhere. Not naive to the pressure and the longing. But what would Paul say to you? Do not be yoked. Do not get together with someone that is in the ways that matter the most, the total opposite. Oh, he may feel like the one, you know, he seems so compatible and the stuff kind of comes out and Paul says, you're like light and dark. Separate yourselves from them. Do not contaminate yourself. The problem is that you kind of go, oh, you know, we'll, we'll pray for them and they'll come to know Christ. And uh, it happens rarely. And the reason it happens so rarely is because you've started the relationship showing that your faith is secondary to them. You started the relationship saying, I'm the one who's prepared to compromise. Look what my faith means to me. And essentially what you're shouting at them is you're saying, hey, by the way, for me, Jesus is not enough. I need you. If you're thinking of dating or marrying an unbeliever and you have a romantic notion of what it will be like, can I read one sentence that stopped me absolutely cold this week? It was from an article I was reading uh, on this issue. Uh, A woman married a perfectly lovely, professional, handsome unbeliever. And this is what she said. If you think you are lonely before you get married... It's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you are married. And that made me think. I emailed a a whole host of people, uh, about half a dozen, friends who are married to unbelievers. Don't worry, I'm not pointing fingers here. And I asked them this question. What would you say to someone considering dating, marrying Dating or marrying a non-Christian. I'm going to read you a couple of things that they said to close. You will consistently have to live... This is not my words, by the way. So don't get it me. You will consistently have to live with the knowledge that you have a different belief structure to the person that you love most. And your time together will be relatively short comparing to the eternity together. You have to compromise about the very important aspects about how you live out your faith, how much time you spend doing church things, how you spend your money, how you raise children. Can you say grace and pray out loud in your own home? You will not have the daily support and encouragement of a partner to pray with you and to put your trust in God. And the real danger is that over time you'll get worn down and stop talking about and acting out your faith with your partner for fear of turning them away from you. And then you start using this fear as an excuse for being a part-time Christian. Even if you don't face any of these issues, you will always know that you're going against God's word. What will be the next thing you compromise on? Just one other little comment. One person who responded simply said, uh, in answer to the question, what would you say to someone considering uh, 
dating or marrying a non-Christian. Picture your future together. If that person isn't a Christian, different priorities, ways of making decisions, worldviews, directions, ways you want to spend your time, your money, potential arguments over how you spend time and money, feeling of spiritual isolation and a battle at home, your faith not being respected, not sharing your faith with your spouse is very strange when you share everything else. Living in a split household is challenging. It's sobering, isn't it? But I wanted to give you kind of real life examples of what it looks like if you do yoke with unbelievers. If you're willing to compromise. I'm going to finish there. I've said plenty enough. Um, I wonder if uh, we turn to the people beside you. I, I know these subjects are, are, are sensitive. I want us to deal with them sensibly but not in a compromised manner. So uh, why don't we turn to personal? Any challenges there? And I'm not just talking about relationships here. You know, how do we essentially yoke with uh, unbelievers in other ways? Uh, what, do we, uh, what do we worship essentially more than God? How do we compromise? Look, spend time, just one minute with the person beside you, group around you. Is there any points of clarification you want? Any questions you want to ask? And we'll just have a moment of that to finish, okay?